As Charles said, why don't you guys go ahead and uh, go to the book of Nahum. Um, If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, there should be some black hardback ones around you, and that's the page number that you can find the book of Nahum. Um, And we have worked our way through uh, the book of Jonah. We were in that for five weeks. And so what we're doing is this is really the end cap to that series Um, in the book of Jonah. We took five weeks. We're looking at what it looked like to be toward the city. Um, And so now what we're going to do is see that about a century later, God raised up another prophet, a century beyond when Jonah went to Assyria, to the city of Nineveh, and he uh, um, preached his message there that God raised up another prophet, another man of God, whose name was Nahum. And Nahum came to that exact same nation, Assyria, to the exact same city, Nineveh, but this time it was going to be a a different type um, of message. So again, what I want to do is just before we before we get started, I want to uh, pray, and then we will look at the book of Nahum. So let's just pray with me. God, we love you, and we thank you that you are a God who hears our prayers. And so, God, I pray that you would do a great work in us this morning as we hear from a book that is often overlooked because of the content of the book. Um, The things we're going to hear this morning, the things we're going to see in Scripture are oftentimes frowned upon, these attributes and these characteristics that we see from our God, from the prophet Nahum. But, God, I pray that as we open the Scriptures that we would submit our hearts to the authority of the word because these are not random words from a random guy speaking random things, but these are words from God himself through the prophet Nahum to us so that we would be encouraged even today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would actively work in our midst today, that you would use me in the proclamation of your word, and that, Holy Spirit, you would come and soften the hearts of the hearers and soften my heart even as I preach, that you would demonstrate your power, the power of God to save, the hope that comes to the unbeliever, to the hope that comes to the believer even, when we see that there is judgment, good, right, judgment that comes from God, that we would not look upon our God and go how awful he is, but we would look upon our God and look and say and draw the conclusion how awesome he is, that in holiness, sin can have no part with him. God, stir our hearts with joy. Help us to see Jesus in this text. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So there's a guy from Great Britain, Clive Staples Lewis, most commonly known to you guys probably as C.S. Lewis. Um, Pretty well-known atheist, had an encounter with Christ, became a believer. And as a believer in Christ, wrote a lot of great works. Two that he's probably most well-known for, two that you guys are probably know the best, would be one book called Mere Christianity, a very apologetic book on the, on the uh, Christian faith, how Christianity isn't just to be a thing of religion, but how it is to call us to Christ and that he comes in this book and he argues in a very, very well way on what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. But the other thing that he's probably most well known for is actually a series of books. And they are children's stories called the Chronicles of Narnia. And in one of those books in that children's series, there's a book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there's an encounter there inside that book where the Pevensey children, Peter, Susan, and Lucy, bump into the beavers and they have a conversation, right? about Aslan. And Susan asks, and she's learning about Aslan, and who, who is this character, and what is he, and what is he about? And as Susan is talking to Mr. Beaver, she says, who is Aslan? And Mr. Beaver replies, Aslan is a lion. He is the lion, the great lion. And Susan then says, well, is, is, he, is he safe? Is, is, is he quite safe? Safe? says Mr. Beaver, who said anything about safe? Of course he is not safe, but he's good. He's the king. 
when we were in Louisville at the Louisville Zoo, it, re, re, reading the book of Nahum chapter 1 as we're about ready to go there and look, and then reading that um, and remembering that idea from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe remem- reminds me of a time in the Louisville Zoo where there at the Louisville um, Zoo, when we were living there, they had a display where there was lions, and there was one male lion, um, and I mean regal gigantic, the big, you know, hairy mane around his face. I mean, just a big, big beast of a creature. And what was cool is if you caught it at the right times, usually towards dusk at nights, he'd be laying there just sort of, you know, king of his domain. But then as the sun was going down for some reason, because we experienced this in multiple times, he would just start roaring like loud roaring. And if you've never heard the roar of like a male lion, it is, it is something that's bad. I'm not talking about like YouTube speaker watching a lion roar. I'm talking like this thing, a real creature in front of you roaring. It was just, it's incredible. The magnification of his voice, the loudness, the magnitude, the awesomeness, the majesty of that creature. And what you come to realize in just, I mean, we were separated. I mean, he was way over there. There was this gigantic pit that was very deep, very wide, no way he could get. And so there was a sense where you were safe in distance, but hearing him roar, you're like, good grief. Like, this isn't just some little kitty cat you put on your lap. Like, you don't look at that lion and go, is he safe? You can almost hear, like, Mr. Beaver walking along. It's like, that, that thing? Of course he's not safe. And then you draw the conclusion, well, he's probably not good because he wants to eat me. But when it comes to the God, our God, the Lord God, Yahweh, of the Scriptures, there's something very similar that we see with that interaction between the Pevensey children and Mr. Beaver. And when he says, is he safe? Well, of course he's not safe. But the good news is that Aslan is good. And when you come to the book of Nahum and you read chapter 1, there's often a lot of language that we're going to read here in Nahum chapter 1 where we read it. And what we do is go, well, that's not, that's not my God. Because we're going to read some pretty strong language. Language like, God is jealous. God is avenging. God is wrathful. God is going to cut people down. God is going to afflict people. God calling people vile. And when you read that language, for the average Bible reader, you read your Bible, it's like, we're in love with the happy-go-lucky, everything smooth, peace-loving God of the New Testament. But we oftentimes make the wrongful assumption that this wrathful Nahum chapter 1 kind of God is not, is not my God. But we're going to see is that in the language that Nahum actually uses when he is speaking to God's people, the people of Judah, is that this wasn't language that they were to receive and go, forget you, God, that's not my God. They were meant to receive that language and hear that language and go, man, because God is this way, that stirs great hope. And that means great peace is actually going to come to me. Nahum's name means comfort. It means encouragement. So God raised up a man named Nahum, whose name was comfort, whose name was encouragement. And God puts a word, a message into Nahum's mouth And Nahum goes and he's going to speak this message to God's people. He didn't, unlike Jonah, he didn't go to the city of Nineveh. He stayed in Israel. He stayed in Jerusalem. He was speaking to God's people, but he was giving truths that were going to happen to a nation, a nation for centuries and centuries and centuries ruled that whole Middle East region with an iron fist. And it was causing God's people especially, but other people under the rule and the impression of the Assyrians to start going, man, how long, O Lord? Like, how come you're just turning a blind eye to this? Because it could be very easy for us to read the end of the book of Jonah, where a nation marked by oppression, a nation that was marked by injustice, a nation that was marked by sin and unrighteousness and wickedness. Jonah comes and preaches an eight-word sermon and the whole people repent. And you could read that and go, well, how, how is that justice? Like, how is that fair? Centuries and centuries and centuries of sin building up and building up and building up. Then all of a sudden, God just sort of goes, yeah, I forgive them. Sweep it under the rug, no big deal. And we said over and over again, that's the goodness of God's mercy and grace is that he looks at us and he is patient with us. He's steadfast and loving. 
and he strives with us. But the book of Nahum shows us that there is a point in time when God's patience runs dry. So as we look at the book of Nahum this morning, what I want you guys to see is this. That in light, even in light of all of this language that we're going to read, language that's very strong language and seemingly very angry heart language, that we're going to see that God is good. God truly is good in the midst of Nahum chapter 1. And because God is good, unrighteousness will not go unchecked. Sin will not go unchecked. Oppression will not go unchecked. So what we're going to do is we're just going to divide chapter 1 in half. What we're going to do is see in the first six verses that our sovereign God is going to make himself known. He's going to, in a very psalm-like way, Nahum is going to teach us some things about our God. God is going to make himself known. And then in light of making himself known in verses 7 through 15, Nahum is going to show us that our God is good and in his goodness he will extend judgment where judgment is due. So if you will with me in your copy of scripture, whether it's your phone, whether it is um, on your iPad, if it's in that black hardback Bible in front of you, or your own personal copy of Scripture, if you will read along with me in Nahum chapter 1, and then we will look to um, these two points, God making himself known, and then our God and his judgment. So this is Nahum chapter 1. We'll read it in its entirety. This is God's word to us through Nahum. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His ways in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. But the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. He will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. And I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold. Upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So when we go and we step back and we just engage Nahum chapter 1, what we see is what most people see when they look at Nahum chapter 1. What do you see? Like, man, like God's not too happy, too happy here in Nahum chapter 1. But you'll notice there's two distinct categories of speech that Nahum is giving us so that we will learn good and right things about who God is. 
There is most markedly, and this is often what we see when we read Nahum chapter 1, is this. It's that category of just sort of like that wrathful language, right? God is jealous. God is avenging. He's avenging. He's wrathful. He takes vengeance. He keeps wrath for his enemies. And that idea is just seen over and over again. But if you're paying attention, there's also another category of language that just pops up on the scene as you read Nahum chapter 1. And that is this language of hope. You see that in verse 3. You see that in verse 7. You see that in verse 12. You see that in verse 13. So when you look at these first six verses, what you see is two things. What you see is there's a description of God's being, who God is, and you see a description of God's actions. So when we read that the Lord is jealous, the Lord is avenging, the Lord takes and keeps wrath for his enemies... If that were me, if you could somehow like insert my name on here and go, man, I know a guy named John Davis. John Davis is jealous. He's avenging. He's a vengeful guy. He keeps wrath for his enemies. We would rightly draw the conclusion, like, that's not how you want to be described. When we take those kind of characteristics and those kind of attributes and just apply it to us, me and you, and our daily interactions, we rightly draw the conclusion, like, that's not quite good. Good characteristics, good qualities to be noted by. But when we ascribe these qualities and these characteristics to God, it is something different because God acts in these ways perfectly. When you and I were act this way, we would act in a way that would be sinful. We don't act in perfect, holy wrath. We don't act in perfect, holy vengefulness or in anger. It is sinful anger. You have done something against me. Well, I'm going to cut you down. I'm going to get you. It's born out of a heart of vengeance, out of a heart that is malicious or a heart that is capricious. But when we talk about these characteristics in regard to God, it is not that way. God is not capricious. He does not have any unreasonable change of mind. God is not malicious. He's not spiteful. He's not vicious. He is not cruel. God alone is holy and pure. And he works all of these things in accordance to his good and perfect will. And Nahum wants to see this. Because as soon as he says this, what does he say in verse 3? He goes and he pulls back out that confession, that Jewish confession that shows up throughout the Old Testament over and over again. The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now, if you remember last week in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah referenced this exact same confession. But for Jonah, he was really not cool with that. Because what did Jonah say in Jonah chapter 4? He says, God, I know you're merciful. I know you're gracious. I know you're slow to anger. I know you're abounding in steadfast love. I know you relent from disaster. And because you are this way, that is the reason why I ran from you. I did not want to go to Nineveh. I did not want to preach the message you told me to preach because I know you are this way. I know you're patient. And you delight in extending mercy. And so for Jonah... This truthfulness about God, he bemoaned that fact, but Nahum steps up and grabs that same truth and rightly says, but listen, we don't bemoan the fact that God is this way. What we do is we celebrate because God is this way, there is great hope. That's why you, Israel, have not been wiped off the map, because God has been patient with you. That's why when Nahum speaks to God's people and says, listen, just because God has been patient and extending patience to Assyria, this awful nation that has oppressed you for centuries and centuries, don't mistake God's patience for God condoning their actions. I have this conversation a lot with my children at various times when we have to tell them something. We will say something to them, and instead of them obeying, they disobey, and they start whining, and they start throwing a fit. And my wife and I will exercise patience towards them. We don't fly off the handle. We just don't spank out of anger. We don't just start yelling at them. But we're calm. We're cool. We're collected. We're talking to them. But for some reason, there is something being conveyed there because we have to say this. Listen, don't mistake my patience in talking to you in the way that you keep disobeying and disobeying and disobeying in this conversation. Don't mistake that for me somehow agreeing with your actions. 
My patience now is meant to extend to you so that you will see that I am good and so that you will see I have love for you. My patience is meant to lead you towards repentance. My patience towards you is not meant for you to go, oh, daddy's cool with what I'm doing right now. And Nahum's teaching the exact same thing to God's people. Listen, just because Assyria's been getting away with this kind of stuff, don't think God's up there like, Assyria, that's right, man, oppression, that's cool. But you can sort of get the vibe like, what you know, people start thinking that way in Nahum's day like God. Because we're a century beyond Jonah. As soon as Jonah steps off the scene, Assyria ramps back up into power, comes northern kingdom God. All the kingdoms of the Mediterranean coast are oppressed. They're put under their rule. They're hauled off to Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah is subjugated to the kings of Assyria, and it's oppression, 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 injustice, injustice, over and over in years and decades and centuries. And you can start to see God's people going, man, like how long, O Lord? How long are you going to, to act in this way? So then Joan, or Nahum goes along, and what he does is he starts recalling some of the, the ways that because God is this way, because of God's being in verses 2 and 3, when he goes into the latter part of verse 3 all the way through verse 6, he's going to show God's people that because God is this way, this is who he is. These are what his actions are like. His way is in whirlwind and storm. Something smacks very similar of, of the, um, um, the way God interacted with his people. When you hear that idea of whirlwind and storm, it's something that sounds very familiar of Jonah, the way God sent the wind and the way God sent the storm and the way God uses nature. God is so sovereign, so majestic that even the clouds, when we stand on earth and we look up and we go, man, the clouds are so high. The clouds are so up there. But when we put God on the scene, God doesn't stand below and go, look how awesome, look how mighty those clouds are. God looks down. The clouds are as if the dust of, of God's feet. He, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. That, that is language that takes the mind back to Exodus and the Red Sea crossing. He dries up the rivers. That takes us to Joshua and drying up the river and crossing the Jordan. When it says Bashan and Carmel wither and the bloom of Lebanon withers, Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon were some of the most fertile, agriculturally producing areas within Israel. When drought came, these areas were not affected. Some of the worst of natural disasters could come. Rain could not be happening for months and months and months and months. And everything would be dry. Everything would be waste. But Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon would not wither. But in light of who God is, when God shows up on the scene, these things cannot stand in regard. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. And that's a scary place to be there in verse 5 because all you have to do is go out to Washington State and talk to some of the people who experienced that mudslide that was going on there. You want your world turned upside down? Let the one thing that we just take for granted that is firm, unmovable, unshakable, it's the earth that we stand on. That's why when an earthquake comes, it freaks people out. Because this, I mean, this is the one thing that's solid. We're standing on it. It's the one thing we build on. It's the one thing we put foundations on. It's the one thing that is nearly immovable. It's that solid foundation that is in our mind constantly. But when a mudslide happens, people freak out. When an earthquake comes, it shows like, man, the, you know, even, even the earth is subject to God. There are things that when God comes and moves and shakes and he does these things, and Nahum is telling this Great actions of God. And he comes to that verse 6 and he draws this conclusion. Who can stand before his indignation? So Nahum is rightly pointing to people like, listen, if this is who God is and this is what God does, think on this. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? When his wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him, who can stand? Who can come? Who can move themselves before God and not come away somehow affected? Because when we see that if this is who God is and this is what his actions are, Nahum is about ready to go because these things are true. This is the kind of stuff that's going to happen to, Nah or happen to Nineveh. These are the kind of things that are going to be good for you, Judah, for those of you who take refuge. Because I don't think it's a mistake that verse 6 comes right before 
verse 7, in the language that Nahum uses. When he says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? What he's helping us see is the difference between malevolence and benevolence. If God was malevolent, if God was not good, and we read verses 1 through 6, we should tuck tail and get out of here. Like if God was just malevolent, evil, wicked in heart, no speck of good in him at all, and we were to read that God is jealous, avenging, wrathful, he's getting his enemies, then you and I would need to tuck tail and try to run as far as possible because we are enemies of God because of the sin and the unrighteousness that dwells within us. But God is not malevolent. He is benevolent. He is good. And that's what Nahum comes along and he puts right next to verse 7. Listen, even in light of verses 1 through 6, brothers and sisters, people of God, verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Those who take refuge in him find a sure and strong tower. The Lord is a refuge for his trusting people. The Lord himself is the fortified place where people flee in times of danger. See, freedom from danger is never part of God's agenda for his people. When you become a believer, that does not mean it's going to be high fives and puppy dogs the rest of your life. It's not freedom from danger, right? It's just not a rainbow, sunny sky, no clouds from the day of your conversion to the day that Christ comes back or the day you die. See, it's for the Christian, it's not freedom from danger. That is never part of God's agenda for his people, but it is protection and security in the midst of danger. And that's what Nahum is teaching us about God. The Lord is good. He's your refuge. You can flee to him. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And there's this first spark of hope that comes to God's people. So not only do we see that God is this way, in the actions that God does, but we see that, yes, the Lord is good, but for those who do not worship God, for those who do not anger themselves to God, to those who say, I see what God says, I see who God is, I see what God is about and what he is doing, no thank you, no part of that, I don't want it, I don't believe it, I'm going to go and do my own thing that it will go bad for them. And in Nahum's day, that was the people of Syria. They were decidedly against Yahweh, decidedly against the Lord God of Israel. So what does God say? God says he's going to destroy this enemy. Their time has come. Patience is no more. Judgment will come. And you have to know this. Listen, when it says, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and he will pursue his enemies into darkness... What do you plot against the Lord? He's going to make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. We read that and go, well, good grief, God. Couldn't you just extend a little bit more? How is that fair? And oftentimes in our mind, what we do is we draw this like this distinction, this dichotomy in our mind, sort of like, you know, day one, Assyria pops up on the scene, completely neutral, not marked by evil, not marked by wickedness, not marked by unrighteousness, then God just sort of twiddling his thumbs, comes walking around and goes, hey, there's some people. Why don't I just extend vengeance and wrath and anger toward them? And then we step back and go, well, if that was the case, then yeah, we could step back and go, well, God, the fact that you're about to destroy your enemy, that's not cool. But these were people who've received centuries, decades upon decades upon decades of mercy, patience and grace. And we get to that place where eventually, as God judges the nations, as the sovereign Lord over all the earth, there comes a point in time when, if you're thinking of two scales, a nation will just build up wickedness and wickedness and wickedness and wickedness. And as the scale tips, 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 it's almost like there's a button underneath that scale. And eventually that scale will go down so far and that will press that button. And when that button is pressed, patience has run its course. Now, we saw it go back and forth a little bit. When Jonah came, the people repented, and so the, you know, the repentance sort of outweighs. And in regard to the nations, as God interacts with the nations, there eventually comes a point. You see this when God is talking with Moses. When Moses wants to cut through a certain country, he goes, no, you can't go through here yet. The sin and the iniquity of the Amorites hasn't quite been built up yet. But what we see here is Assyria has finally come to that place. They are beyond patience, and uh, judgment is going to come to them.
And you see that in verses 10 and 11 in a very poetic way. They're entangled, like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They're consumed like stubble, fully, fully dried. There's going to be total consumption. What happens? Why is a drunkard a drunkard? It's because his drink has consumed him. If you've ever been walking out through the woods and you come across briar prat, a briar patch, those entangling thorns, when they consume something and wrap themselves around something, there's no hope for that thing. That thing that it has wrapped itself around and entangled itself around, it has consumed it. Just like a dry field of stubble, if you've ever been driving through the country and you see wheat or you see hay that's been cut down, there's just sort of that dry stubble that's just left in the field. If someone were to come and drop a match in that thing, that thing would blow up like a can of gasoline. It's consumed in its entirety. And Nahum is using this figurative language saying, listen, your time has come. God is going to bring judgment. It's going to be completely consuming. But then what does he do? In his goodness, he turns and he speaks. The Lord says, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down. I know that I've used Assyria as a way to bring discipline to my people, but this is not going to happen anymore. In verse 14, the Lord speaks again. He turns his attention directly to Syria. And what does he say? No more shall your name be perpetuated. Your future is cut off. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. Assyria's gods are going to be cut off. He turns and he speaks to Assyria and he says, I will make your grave for you are vile. The Assyrian people would be cut off. And when you go home, man, if, if, if you just want some interesting reading, just go home and read uh, Nahum chapter 2 and Nahum chapter 3. Because Nahum gets incredibly specific about real-life events that actually took place in 612 B.C. when the, the Medo-Babylonian Empire sweeps up into Assyria and lays waste to Nineveh. And the stuff you read, the destruction of Nineveh, there's people in the streets, they're going mad, they're rushing around, chariots, there is bloodshed, people are dying, there's just desolation left and right because their time for judgment has come. But when we come to verse 15, there's something unique that shows up on the scene. So not only do we see a word of hope in Nahum 1.7 and then Nahum 1.12 and 13, but when you look at verse 15, there is a unique message of hope that shows up at the end. So before Nahum moves on to that prophetic look toward the future of what is going to happen to this city in, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, we get this little drop of hope that was meant to stir the hearts of God's people. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, Judah. Fulfill your vows, and never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. God calls his delivered people to celebrate. The victory announcement is coming at last. And having told of the Lord's goodness and his awesome judgment, Nahum then told of the Lord's ultimate deliverance of the people to Judah. The image here is this. If you've ever seen any maps of Jerusalem, it's sort of up on the top of a mountain, and there's, a, and there's some mountain ranges that just surround it. And when you see this language of behold upon the mountain, the feet of him who brings good news, it's this image of the people of Judah who have been on the receiving end of, of, of oppression, of injustices at the hand of the Assyrian nation, the Assyrian empire. There's this guy, this runner, this messenger who's trucking along the mountaintops, and he comes and he's shouting, good news! The good news, God has acted. We now have peace. It's not a false peace. We had peace with Assyria as long as we did what they told us to do, as long as we gave them money, as long as we didn't act up, as long as we didn't revolt against this kingdom. Yes, there was this sense of peace, but now we have true peace. And that word for peace here is shalom. It's this, it's this rhythm of life. It's this intimate connection, this intimate communion with God. We're going to actually experience this now, even though we haven't experienced it for so long. And this messenger comes and it's almost like you see him standing, standing on a mountain or a top or a, a hill. And he's shouting across the valley yelling, peace. We actually have peace because of what God has done. And this was meant to be a word of encouragement to God's people. See, the Assyrian kingdom was a kingdom of oppression. For easily a century, God's people were marked by the attitude of how long, O oh Lord. God's people were a people yearning for deliverance. 
They wanted to be delivered. They wanted peace. They wanted true peace. And when Nahum writes, verse 15, saying, Look, a messenger is coming over the mountains with good news. He's bringing a message of peace. This good news was truly cause for great rejoicing. I mean, just imagine. Try to insert yourself into this place. When Nahum came with his message and saw, yes, God is this way and God will do these things, our question of how long, O Lord, has finally been answered. But when we step back from Nahum chapter 1, what people often do is go, okay. That's like pretty sweet for people in Nahum's day, but like I don't sense that like the nation of Assyria is oppressing like the United, United States. Like, right, we're not a people under like geopolitical oppression. We don't have a nation exerting its power over us. We don't, we don't have a people who have put us into subjugation to another power greater than us. We don't have people being raped and pillaged. We don't have people being torn out of their hometowns and drawn off to a foreign country in slavery. So then the question then becomes, so like, so what does this mean for us as New Testament believers? Like, how does this apply? So when we jump to the New Testament, the New Testament speaks of another kingdom. A kingdom that's very similar to the kingdom of Assyria, but it's actually a kingdom that was at the root of kingdoms like Assyria, kingdoms like Babylon. The New Testament speaks of another kingdom that is marked by oppression. The book of Ephesians describes its ruler as the prince of the power of the air and talks about the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. It's a kingdom that covers the earth and whose mission is to kill, still, and destroy everything God has made. It's the kingdom of Satan that is hell-bent on spreading lies, disease, death, injustice, and oppression. If all the established kingdoms that you read in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, all the way up to the present day, the book of Daniel says this very clearly, God sets up kings, God lowers kings. God brings in kingdoms, God lowers kingdoms. God is sovereign over the orchestrating of all of these kingdoms. But at the midst of it, these kingdoms that are evil, these kingdoms that are oppressive, these kingdoms that are marked by death and destruction and despair, there is a kingdom that is more sinister ruling these kingdoms that bring oppression to, to God's world, and it is the kingdom of Satan. Of all the established kingdoms, this is the one at the root of evil and the oppression of all the others. The first inhabitants of this kingdom were Adam and Eve. And from generation to generation, the oppression and death of Satan's kingdom has been passed down. We see the effects of Satan's kingdom and like God's people in Nahum, like God's people in the time of Jonah, like God's people in the time of Isaiah, and the time of Jeremiah, we live in a world where we see the effects of Satan's kingdom wreaking havoc on God, in God's creation. And we stir up this, stirs up this cry within us, how long, O Lord? See, in the midst of all of this, though, there is great hope. Why? When verse 15 shows up in Nahum chapter 1, that idea of a messenger who brings good news who publishes peace, wasn't just a messenger who was bringing good news just in Nahum's time. The New Testament is replete that there was another messenger who came in the midst and the mess of the satanic kingdom that is ruling and reigning and having its way right now. And into the midst, this messenger is Jesus Christ. And through the incarnation of the Son of God being wrapped in flesh, being born to the Virgin Mary, what happens? The insertion of a new kingdom comes in. In the midst of all this mess steps Jesus Christ and he ushers in hope. Jesus initiates his public preaching ministry, striking right at the heart of this dark kingdom. What does he say in Mark 1? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew picks up on this, and it is Jesus going throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of God's kingdom, and he's healing every disease and every affliction. We see that in Matthew chapter 9. See, when it comes to us being toward the city, this is good news for us. The good news of the kingdom, the good news of God's kingdom, 
The gospel of God's kingdom is this, is that we have a king who rules and reigns, and his name is King Jesus. King Jesus cloaked himself in flesh. He was inserted into this world that you and I live in. And when King Jesus came and was preaching, repent, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, he is declaring. Like in my mind's eye, think like William Wallace, Mel Gibson. Like stepping on the scene, like shouting declaration, like, listen, there's a new kingdom in town. And a kingdom that is ruled by a king who can actually exert authority over this sinister kingdom that seeks to tear down and destroy everything God is about. The gospel of the kingdom is what our lost city needs. The gospel of the kingdom is the announcement that life with God under the rule of God is made immediately available to us through Jesus Christ our king. And he arrives as one who restores, who rules, and provides access to God's kingdom through his shed blood. Because this isn't just a king who shows up on the scene and goes, listen, do a bunch of stuff because I'm in charge. This is the king that cloaks himself in flesh and he comes to earth and he goes, listen, I'm going to shed my life's blood so you can be drawn into my kingdom. No other king in the history of mankind has ever come and done, and done that. What king lays down his life for his people, his people who were not his people, but he goes, I'm dying, my blood's being shed so that you who are far off can be brought into my kingdom. I love this. Dan Montgomery says this. The gospel is not simply an invitation. The gospel of God's kingdom is a declaration. The time has come for God to be your king. He is reclaiming and restoring his world. Repent of all of your petty kingdoms and believe this good news. It's a declaration of war against the competing claims for authority. And it's an invasion of God's power and rule. A kingdom is where what the king wants done, gets done. So God's kingdom is where what God wants done, gets done. The life of Jesus as displayed in the Gospels shows that kingdom invading and transforming the order of the world, declaring war on the petty political and religious kingdoms that surround us and on Satan's reign of death and destruction. So when we read Nahum chapter 1, there is something that's playing out before us that God says, listen, my message to you in Nahum is this, that the power of God to overcome the power of evil is a real power. And it's playing out in this instance in Nahum chapter 1 on the scene of an oppressive kingdom that's trying to rule and reign and exert its sin, exert this this, uh, idea of death, idea of destruction and spare upon God's people and it becomes for us a picture pointing to the New Testament where there's going to be a better king ushering in a better kingdom that will have the power, the ability and be equipped by the Son of God himself cloaked in flesh, inserting himself into humanity, declaring and bringing a new and better kingdom. And you and I can be folded into that kingdom through repentance and through faith. See, for us who are believers, that question of how long, O oh Lord, we can step back and go, man, God, I've, I've, been in, I've been drawn into the kingdom. Your blood that was shed has been applied to my heart. I have repented of my sin. I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And we as believers step back and go, man, but I still see the prince of the power of the air still just exerting stuff. I mean, that's why we're doing things like compass, right? Fatherlessness, not cool with God. Homelessness, not cool with God. And so what we do is we step back and go, man, God, how long, how long, O oh Lord, are we going to live in this world of wickedness? How long, God, are you just going to let this strive by? And what we could do is step back and have our hearts drift towards the attitude that the people of God had in the times of Isaiah and Jonah and Nahum and starting to doubt God's goodness. But instead, Jesus steps up on the scene and goes, listen, my kingdom is here. My kingdom is now. You've been folded into the kingdom. Be an ambassador of the kingdom, taking the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are the least, to those who are the last, to those who are the lost. But for some of us here... We can't quite say we've been folded into the kingdom. And you might still be asking that how long, O Lord, question. 
but it's because you are reaping what you have been sowing in the realm of sin. You see, everything is crumbling. Everything is crushing. Everything is marked by despair and death, and there just seems to be no hope. And you ask, just how long? Like, why is this like this? And it's because the shed blood of the king who ushers in the new kingdom has not been applied to your heart. You're standing more like an Assyrian, more like a Ninevite on the outside who's going to receive judgment because the shed blood of the king has not covered you and you're not a citizen of that kingdom. You're more a citizen of the kingdom of Satan and death and destruction because the blood of the king has not been shed for you, applied to you, put on you, and brought you in. That's the beautiful language of Colossians chapter 1. Christ was crucified, and you've been transferred out of the domain of darkness. You've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness. And it's like a tree, if you can think of a tree. I was once a tree in this. I was growing in this kingdom of darkness. My roots were in this kingdom of darkness. And what happens? The heavenly gardener comes along and goes, you are now mine. I'm ripping you up out of this domain. I'm ripping you up out of this kingdom, and I'm transferring you. I am transplanting you into the kingdom of the beloved son. And that is the good news of the gospel. Because when King Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die on the cross so that you could just wither in despair. He died on the cross so that when you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, the beautiful gardener, the divine gardener, the divine king, the heavenly king, he comes and goes, man, this is my child. My shed blood on the cross is going to be applied to this, to this child of mine. And he roots you out of the domain of darkness, out of the kingdom of darkness. And he comes and he transplants you into the kingdom of the beloved Son, And that's the good news that we take to our neighbors. That's why this is the, the end cap the, on the toward, the toward the City series. And we're going to pray like this here, here in a couple of minutes. I want to get, get us get into the habit of just once we work through a book, just taking time and just, and just praying. So like, what is our hope for the city? Our hope for the city is this. And see, I don't want you to think this way. When you hear me say, what does it look like to be toward the city? What does it look like to take the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the cross, the gospel of grace to, to our city? Where we want to see our city change. What we can often do is go, man, like that's massive. 120,000 people in our city. How are 80 people going to see 120 turned upside down on their heads for the gospel? And what we do is we look at the enormity of the task and draw the conclusion, well, my little interactions with the people in my little sphere of influence is not going to accomplish anything. And that's the wrong conclusion to draw. The right conclusion to draw is this. I see the enormity of the task. That's why I need the king who has authority over the kingdom of darkness to come and empower. So whenever I'm just at work in my own little sphere of influence, maybe you're like my sphere of influence or like the five people that sit around the cubicle where I work and I see them 40 hours a week. Monday through Friday, like that's my sphere of influence. Okay, God is saying you be an ambassador of the king to those people. And you bend your knee and you just pray, go, God, do do a work of revival. God, just as you are leading me, help me to talk, help me to speak, help me to rep my king. Because my king has transferred me from here and he's put me over here. God, help me to be an ambassador for the king as I am an emissary for the kingdom of Christ. There's power in this kingdom. There's good news in this kingdom. And I want my neighbor to be able to experience truly the good life now. I want my neighbor, my coworker, my cousin, my uncle, my aunt, my grandparent to be able to experience life with God under the rule with God now. So God, help me. Help me. So what I want to do is this. I'm just going to pray for us. Just as your pastor, I want to love on you in this way and to pray for you in this way. And I'm going to ask that you would be not passive prayers, just listening to what I'm saying, but that you'd be asking God, God, what does it look like for me to be employed as an ambassador for the kingdom of King Jesus? And as we pray, then we'll stop, we'll come up, we'll do a couple of songs, and then we'll go on down the way. I'm already smelling the, the fried chicken. That's downstairs. And so we're not, if God comes... 
and, and dwells in our midst, we will stay longer Forget fried chicken. But, uh, um, but the hope that we have for our city is this, and this is how I'm going to ask you to pray. I don't know if you've ever read any of the great stories of revival that have ever happened in America and in Great Britain, 1700s. What we usually like is this, is we like the cool stories that come out of revival, but we don't like doing the legwork and the groundwork that ushers in revival. Revival always came in on the backs of people who had an uncanny communion with God. And so when they started praying, God, break loose in this city, it was because these people were spending days and months and years and years and years in just uncommon, uncanny communion with God. So I'm going to ask that you'd pray this way because this is how I'm going to pray. Is that God would first break us and that the Holy Spirit would first stir up a revival in these four walls. Because if God can take 12 people from the New Testament who had uncommon communion with the Son of God and the entire known world at that time was, these are the words from Acts, turned upside down on its head, then it is not impossible for us to draw the conclusion that God come and move in our midst and take us 80 and see our city dumped on its head in the name of Jesus Christ. But what we don't do is go, hey, God, break forth revival in here, but we're living our lives like hell. It's God, first do your work within us, so as revival breaks forth in us, then it spills out of this place into the city. Okay? So let's pray in that way. And then what we'll do is we'll have a quick family meeting, and then we'll go and we'll, we'll munch on some, some food. Sound good? Please pray with me, all right? God, our hope in this situation is that revival would truly break out. Like, I'm, I'm not talking about some, like, ho- hokey, you know, sweaty-faced evangelist, you know, revival, like evangelism tent meeting sort of thing. Like I'm talking true revival of religion, true revival of the gospel, breaking forth in our midst. God, we admit we need you to work in our hearts first. We need you to help us see the gospel isn't just for salvation, but the gospel is for life. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and do that work in our midst. Please, Father, do it in my midst. Help me be to, to be the lead example in this area. Help the other pastors of Delta Church to be the lead example in this area so that as our people watch us and we watch our people, then that the same thing would break forth in us, that we would be people who would freely speak into each other's lives, praying for each other, sharing scripture with each other, growing in holiness, confessing sin, spending time in prayer, evangelizing, talking about the good things that God has done in our life. And God, when you grip this place, when you shake the very foundations of Delta Church, then I believe that those will be some of the beginnings, the stirrings of God as you come and you do a great work in us that will spill out into our city. So God, would you please do this for your name's sake and for your glory.